Welcome to Worker Movement, a podcast dedicated to the working class, a podcast dedicated to raising class consciousness. This podcast is for you, for us, for the worker. On our previous episode, we talked about central planning, what it is. And we really just got to the point where we need to centrally plan stuff because it's more efficient. And we hinted at what is necessary in order to begin central planning. So we're going to use the bread example again. And we're going to start by saying, we have a quota. We need to produce, we're going to enforce a quota on the amount of bread that needs to be produced each year to feed the entire world. So the entire population of the world is roughly 7 billion people. And we're going to simplify this and say that we need 700 billion loaves of bread. I have no idea how many loaves of bread feed people and whatever, but we're going to say it's roughly two loaves a week, kind of an arbitrary example, but it's on the rough order of magnitude. So what would need to happen in order to produce 700 billion loaves of bread? Right now in this world, what we really have to do, and this is where the concept of central planning really takes off, is where are we at our current level? And we don't know that because we're not actually given real numbers. So number one, we have to actually audit what we're producing because there, there's no way to even audit it right now because the numbers are hidden behind sales numbers and nonsense like that. Quite frankly, let's say that we're making two-thirds of the number we have to make. Well, now it becomes a game of efficiencies and scaling. You cannot scale, let's say, from 500 billion loaves to 700 billion loaves overnight. It's the same problem we saw during the COVID shock where you can't make toilet paper of consumer quality overnight because the machines were designed for you know, commercial quality. No one went to work. There's no reason to have one ply toilet paper. Everybody wants two ply or eight ply or whatever the hell it is at your house. So now it becomes, you know, that resource dependency on can you find the farmland required to begin growing wheat? Because that, that, that's probably your number one constraint. I don't know. What do you think? Is that, is that the number one constraint you think? Yeah. It, it's defining what the inputs are. It, it really is. Yep. And if our goal is to do this as efficiently as possible, which is, is the goal of central planning, uh, we, and that's what we defined it as on the previous episode, we need to determine how much of each input we need. And I think the biggest bottleneck in all of this is, is the farmland. How many acres of land do we need to produce the flour that goes into the bread? So what, what does that planning look like? Yeah, so if we want to take a look at, at this, I mean, we, we could actually scale this, quite honestly, as we just knew the amount of pounds needed for a flour per bread. One pound of flour in the average loaf of bread. So that's not too bad, right? One pound of flour? Yeah, that, that makes our math really easy, right? So there's 436 million tons of flour created every year. How many pounds are in a ton? 2,000? I'm going to say this is a 2,000 pound metric ton. 436 yeah, million times 2,000 is like, yeah, nine, nine, 872 billion pounds of flour. Guys, we have already solved world hunger by 2024. We needed 700 billion pounds of flour. We are at 872 billion pounds of wheat flour for wheat bread. Think of it that way because there's also rice flour we could use. We could use rye flour. It doesn't have to be wheat, right? There's lots of other grains we can use. So we've already figured out that we did this. So the next is how much water. We can go through that same exercise. Now, if we did this, we could probably end up solving world hunger by 2024 or 2026. The biggest issue will be probably storage at that point in time and transportation and distribution of manufacturing sites because 
really only the first world nations are going to have enough capacity to make this. And this goes to the other issue with centralized planning. Centralized planning, when it's underneath capitalism, is a very nationalistic process. We've determined that the amount of wheat currently grown in the entire world is sufficient for our arbitrarily defined bread production goals of 700 billion loaves. This actually means we can scale back the production of wheat if we're only focused on bread consumption. We have the farmland, we have the the tractors, we have the storage, because we're already doing it. But we're perhaps not doing it as efficiently as we could. So we're wasting resources is what this means. And we're really not wasting resources because we're using wheat for other things. But in the context of making bread, we are wasting resources currently. And not only wasting resources, let, let's take a, a, a simple walk down the efficiency path, like you said. Efficiencies are gained through mechanization, and it's gained through certain crops and certain yields and, and certain you know fertilizer combinations in locations around the globe that have the right daily light integration or DLI or whatever it is for, for the amount of crops you have, right? The soil is just right, the irrigation is right, the tiling is right, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of stuff there. So, so what farmers do you think are actually growing efficient? Do you think it's the small farmers or do you think it's the large farmers at this point in time? Well, I think efficiency is a relative concept because they're growing what is most profitable for them based on their local conditions. So this gets down a little bit into the material conditions of the farmer. If I have a plot of land in a given location, it might be more profitable to grow, let's say, soybeans because they're more expensive on the international market. But based on where I am currently, it's more expensive for me to grow soybeans and transport them to somebody that will buy them than it is to grow some other crop that is actually less valuable on the open market. So instead of growing soybeans, which has a higher, I guess, price, I grow something else because it has a higher price to me personally. So from that perspective, farming is individualistically efficient because you're optimizing your own stake, but you're not necessarily optimizing the stake of the entire system. That's a good point because remember, most farms are grown in cooperatives so that they can help the community grow and take the risk together because for some reason, farmers are socialists when it comes to growing, but not necessarily to social policies. It's just, it's a not to go on a weird side tangent, it's just a weird mentality. Everything from milk, corn, soybean, all the commodity foods are, are all going to be in some sort of cooperative in which they're going to share the grain, share the, the milk, sh- share whatever they have in order to make the cost very uniform across every farm. It also means they can share equipment and they can make it efficient within, within the context and the constructs of their own community. Now, that being said, that means that they are already essentially planning at the local level. What's missing, though, is the next barrier, which is the more larger region of control or the the large region of direction in which the state or the larger entity comes in and says we need you to increase production of of wheat by 10 percent and decrease the production of soy by eight percent we're missing that initiative but what's been driving it now is what you said which is the free market which is terribly inefficient because there's phase delay between what the market says it wants and what the farmers can deliver and so you see the crops having volatility in prices not necessarily based on production, but more based on what the quote-unquote market wants at that time. And then the farmers attempt to get on cycles that they've used historically to get the best prices, which doesn't actually mean that they've predicted the future. It just means that they're responding to the past instead of responding to the forecast in the future. So in some ways, the existing agricultural industry is created around these patterns, and these patterns are rooted in ensuring prices are sufficient to precipitate future 
profits in some way, shape, or form. And really, there's no reason for this estimation to occur in order to respond to market prices, I guess. It's, it's a very weird feedback loop that perpetuates itself. So because I farm and because I'm profitable, I'm going to keep farming in the same way that is profitable. And it has nothing to do with efficiency. And this this can be solved by central planning by saying, I want to do what's efficient. I don't want to do what's profitable. So getting back to our example, we need to grow 700 billion pounds of flour. We have the farmland to do this. And we don't necessarily need to over allocate farmland to grow wheat because we should be able to grow 700 billion pounds of flour on a defined area of land. And so what central planning would do is say, you're going to grow wheat, you're going to grow wheat, you're going to grow wheat, and basically parcel out land mass. In some system, we're not necessarily prescribing what it is. It doesn't have to be somebody shows up at your door and says you're going to grow wheat. It can be a, in this state, we need you know 10,000 people to grow wheat on 100,000 acres, or whatever the numbers are, then we're just making them up. And based on locality and based on your resources and based on how your co-op's set up and your equipment, you can determine how you most efficiently want to grow the wheat that is needed to meet the quota. It's efficient. It's centrally planned and it's not authoritarian, which is, I think, a, a key piece of central planning that people latch on to is that, oh, the USSR did it. It's authoritarian. No, it's an economic model for allocating resource and it's efficient. And that's the point. You bring up the USSR and, and, and they were one of the first countries to attempt it. And they made a lot of errors attempting it because it at that point in time it was mostly theory they're trying to carry out. One of the things that we see that's great about centralized planning or at least the the local the local portion of this is that the local population the cooperative even the larger communities the consortiums the the different growing groups that are out there it's a community of individuals who understand what's going on understand their area of land and understand what they can do which means that the local first and then bubbling up mentality still works in a centralized planning because if we as in the country or we as in the region come out and say you know we need x amount of wheat and corn or whatever that's when the locals can say well, yeah we can handle that or nobody in our area has the equipment to do corn because as we know it takes very specialized equipment to do things in bulk, right? And we're not even talking about things like orchard, which takes years to grow, or berry fields, which take special climates and years for the first berry to come out, or chickens or, or cows or whatever it happens to be, right? But there is enough farmland and enough individuals and people to get this done. It just needs to have a centralized authority to reduce the waste that we have. Because we have these bullshit neoliberal ideas like feeding children or feeding America, whatever it is, like they're going to partner with, with uh, large grocery chains in order to take the food they're going to throw away and then give them to poor people, right? Or, or you can buy this this frozen meal and we'll donate one nickel or something nuts to uh, this shithole chain in which they rely on the donations of the working class in order to feed the working class, which is absolute bullshit. We should rely on the working class to feed the working class, not through money, but through the labor and hard work of the working class. Once we have plots of land allocated to grow our wheat, we have to consistently grow wheat. And over time, we can do this more efficiently. And if we only ever have to grow 700 billion pounds of wheat, it can get more efficient and it can actually require less labor because of mechanization and automation and just general experience and efficiency. And that's all good. But as part of becoming more and more efficient, you have to feed people with the bread you create. And those people have to go to school to get an education so that they can become engineers, so that they can create more efficient equipment, so that that equipment can be manufactured by other people 
to make effectively growing wheat more efficient so that it uses less acreage so that you're growing more efficiently. So what what is entailed in that process that is not accounted for in a non-transient, we're just going to grow 700 billion pounds of wheat once versus we're going to do this every single year perpetually. Oh, and by the way, as we feed more people, population growth will occur. So this year we'll probably have to do 700 billion, but next year we might have to do 750 billion. How do we keep up with that growth? So one of the key points you know, centralized planning is is predicting that. And guess what happens when you have access to hospitals and records? You can predict it because you know how people are being born. If you if you literally digitize the entire like world at that level, you would know every person that's being born and the rate of births that are happening. That's one. Two, it's hard to know what farm you're going to need ten years out, exact number, but it's not hard to know the percent increases you're going to have to have and when to start clearing fields and things like that. So if you talk about a year over year over year, you know, there's lots of stuff like soil and equipment and lots of small nuances. But let's just take, for instance, we'll just stick with wheat. If you want to increase more bread, we talked about this last episode, and you want to increase wheat production, you either have two choices, right? You can You can choose to try to be more efficient on the land that you have. So that might mean tighter crops. That might mean shorter crops, uh, more grained per stalk. It could be whatever it is to try to get to that more more efficiency. The other way is that you have to expand out the number of plots of land that you have. And if that's the case, and you have to distribute the number, amount of farms that you have, you now have infrastructure issue where you have to increase the amount of irrigation, the supply chains to get the fertilizers out to those locations, the number of tractors you get out, um, you know, the number of people that are actually trained to farm. The mechanization portion of it. So let's talk about then that that deep dive then into irrigation or in, in tractors because they require steel. So that's another resource you have to actually account for because if you have to increase the amount of wells and then pump wells in that area for irrigation, you have to then increase the number of potential drill machines, which cost steel. You have to increase the number of sleeves or you know piping that you would put in the ground in the pump area specialized pumping to pump the water out the piping that you see that goes around the cool little circle that makes those little circular you know wheel marks you need that to pump out whatever that's called the irrigation itself and then you need the tractors to do it so you need the steel to come over in order to make more tractors there was actually a shortage of steel a couple of years ago i think people may remember that where steel went through the roof and you in caterpillar could not get enough steel in to fulfill orders john deere could not get enough steel in to or to supply anybody and that's because you had other countries competing for the steel. You had China competing for the own, the same steel that we wanted to bring over the United States to make because it was cheaper for them to take our crushed vehicles and make steel there than it was the United States. They're now competing for it because they're having economic growth. So it's a crazy feedback loop that means that even in the free market where it's, I guess, this liberal idea that it happens and it'll, it'll adjust, you can't actually plan for the future because you don't know what the future is and what the future needs because you're not tracking and it's not centrally planned. So again, if you wanted to grow from, let's say, one field to two fields, you have to double the capacity of the farmer and the water and the tractor and the fertilizer and everything you think you need to grow, you double that capacity. And if you want to go from two to four, you're doubling again. And now there is tribal knowledge gain and things like that and you know efficiencies that way, like you said earlier. But at the end of the day, you still have to have the infrastructure in place. And that feedback loop needs to be centrally planned or we end up with these crazy swings in, in things of value because the commodities 
are basically unstable. It's a metastable at any one point in time in which any small bump to the system can cause it to collapse on itself. So the short takeaway is that in order to grow more wheat, you actually have to mine and produce more steel. Those two commodities are directly linked together. And this is the giant system that we're talking about, where in order to grow more wheat, you have to make more steel. And in order to make more steel, you have to have more mining. And then in order to make people mining, you have to grow more bread because the people doing the mining are eating bread. So it's an interconnected feedback loop. And the inputs define the outputs, and the outputs loop back around to the inputs. So this this is like your classic definitional feedback loop. and we're simplifying this to a phenomenal degree because this feedback loop is not solvable in a closed form. So what does that mean? A closed form uh, solution means that, that at the end, you're going to have a number like 15 because you know all the inputs and outputs. This is actually a very open-ended problem. There's a lot of nonlinearity in between a lot of these functions, which means that you have the inability to get to an actual answer you have more of the ability to get to a uh let's say a function or like um uh, like an empirically driven uh answer it's hard to talk about this without going into math go into math okay okay (laughs) all right um so so while we go into math here a little bit so normally we think of systems and we try not to do linear systems analysis too much because we know not every system is linear but in the case of let's say steel production and and number of tractors and number of corn we can probably estimate that the number of uh farm fields that any one tractor can do probably is linear and we also know that the number of pounds of steel that go into a tractor is also related to the number of tractors needed. But what we don't know is the cost factor or the cost associated with mining. So there are things like the deeper you go down, the harder it is to mine, right? So we don't know what that cost is. So there is no way for us to get a closed form solution on this because that's a very nonlinear relationship that requires iteration and requires boundary conditions that may not be actually fixed at any one time. So as new mines open up, now the cost goes down because it's easier to mine. But maybe as we demand goes up, it costs more energy to mine, more miners and more problems, more accidents and more equipment machines. And that, that also means we need more drilling machines and things that go into mining and big trucks and move the ore around. So it's not necessarily a very linear function because at some point in time, you need another dump truck. So as you begin to grind more out, you need to make more dump trucks. Well, that directly competes with the number of tractors. So it's basically a minimize, minimization problem in which you're trying to, to come to a basically a minimal solution that has slopes and meta, meta solutions everywhere. And any one of these could be correct. It could be that you, know, you don't want to mine anymore so that you can only make so many tractors so you can only grow 12. But you may say, I can live with the greater cost function on my mind, so I'm able to actually drive the mines harder, so now I get to another solution. So the actual endpoint is determined on what you determine to be the boundary conditions at one point in time. If you say, I have to make more wheat, you'll make more wheat because you'll have to just make more meat mining out. But the question is, if you want to not deplete your mines or have a sustainable mining operation... You may come to the fact that you can only grow farms so fast. So now we have a boundary condition that requires us to now go into how do we optimize production on these farms instead of how do we just expand the farms out. And all of this takes an iterative process that requires then 
basically data analysis continuously to solve the problem you're asking for, right? How do I increase wheat? Well, you just make more farms. Well, that's that's boundary that's limited by the number of mines we have for steel. Okay. Well, how do I make more steel? Well, we get more mines. Well, how do I get more mines? We search for it and et cetera and, and down that pathway. And then how long can we grow for? That's determined on how much iron we think we have in the mountains. So when you talk about this system of functions and it takes an input and you talked about costs. So when you talk about costs, you're not saying dollar figures. You're saying that there's some abstract amount of work, whatever that work is. It could be labor. It could be money. It could be natural resources in the case of of iron extraction from the earth. If you need to make 10 tons of steel, that precipitates having raw resources in the form of iron to actually create this steel. So that's a cost to the system. And all of these things are not knowable at a given point in time. So it's a it's a fuzzy solution to this very elaborate system. And it's not something that you can just implement in a model and hit enter and it like spits out what the answer is. The boundary conditions are fluid. As you mine, there becomes less iron. As your field increases, there becomes less fields available to expand into. It's a constant perpetual optimization that is intended to maximize efficiency based on known information at a given point in time. And this known information changes over time. All the liberals think that, well, the market handles this. No, the market finds a way to be profitable in the context of certain information. It doesn't actually seek to proactively optimize efficiency of the system. So that's why central planning succeeds in being efficient, not being profitable. Yeah, and, and let's take let's take smartphones or, or lithium batteries or something for the example. At the current market rate before the Bolivia, Bolivian coup, lithium was not profitable for like electric car companies. It really it took exploitation in order for the market to drive down the cost to get to the efficiency quote unquote that they needed to, to sell it to average consumers for an electric vehicle that has a scumbag that runs the company at some point in time if the electric vehicle is the answer let's say that that's the answer we have to get to electric vehicles because we have to have centralized energy production that distributes energy out at some point in time you can either a Increase your efficiencies in your production to get your margins or just eat shit on it to make electric vehicles. Or if you can't do that, you have to get cheaper raw materials. If those cheaper raw materials do not exist in the wild, then you have to force it. And you do that through political interventions. And this is why the neoliberal policies are not actually good policies because at the end of the day, it only supports the countries large enough to enforce its own neoliberal policies on the rest of the world. Because the market does not give a shit about Bolivia because Bolivia doesn't give has nothing to give out back to it. It's only pure exploitation. It's 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 the only way for capitalism to compete is in order for them to basically steal the resources from underdeveloped nations. And this is neither moral, sustainable, or efficient, but it is profitable. It's very profitable. It is not efficient. We have no idea how much lithium is available, which means we don't actually know how many electric cars we can create. So we don't even know if it is a solution for the future, which also means we don't know if this is actually an answer to global warming, right? We keep saying that electric vehicles are going to save the world. Bullshit. We don't have any idea if that's true or not, right? We, we don't know because no one do, get, does a study because nobody gives a shit about the study because it's profitable. This same concept applies to the iron mining too, where if we need tractors to grow wheat, to grow food, and we run out of iron, 
the entire system changes because now we're not mining. We have to be selective in either coming with a more efficient tractor design or whatever farm implement requires steel, or we have to start scrapping stuff and melting it down and repurposing it. So that's another part of the feedback loop where resources need to be defined efficiently because they are finite. And the market does not give a shit about sustainability or efficiency. It gives a shit about what's profitable. I feel like I've said that like four times. The, the market, like you said, does not care. Literally, literally, the market does not care if it wins or loses on the on the efficiency part of it. It doesn't care. It cares about the profits. Now, if it's more profitable for you to be efficient, your company will drive efficiency. If it was more profitable profitable for you to um, increase demand through advertisements, that's what the market will do. If it's more profitable because you have a disruptive technology sitting in the form of a patent or a breakthrough that would help humanity, and you're a dickhead that has it, then there's your marketability. You have no reason to be helpful. You have no reason to do anything except for driving profit margins within the system, which means if you if you throw away 20 pounds of lithium to make one pound of good lithium and you don't give a shit about the future because you're making money now, that's what the market is going to do. And that's what they currently do. I don't know if it's 20 to 1, but you know you can essentially mine silicone the same way. If, you, if all you care about is profit, you don't care about sustainability. And later on down the road, it will eventually bite us in the ass because we don't have the resources necessary in the making bread input function to make bread. We will have to entirely redo our model when we run out of steel. And like this isn't some hypothetical thing that happens. It's inputs define outputs. And when a needed input runs out, it becomes a giant catastrophe and there's no quick solution. So looking at this in the context of what is sustainable needs to be done so that this horrible outcome is avoided. So the whole premise of the episode was that we want to grow 700 billion pounds of wheat to meet our bread quota, and that's fine. But let's say there's some sort of natural disaster or a drought that prohibits us from meeting our quota. How should the system protect against that? And we're going to look at that from a central planning perspective. I'll say that the system today in capitalism has no incentive to plan for catastrophes because it is not profitable. We just saw this in Texas with the heating and the water issue. There's no incentive for capital to care about catastrophes. But in central planning, there is a capacity to handle these edge cases and prepare for these effectively really terrible outcomes that could kill like literally millions of people. It has to do too with the it's not not just adding capacity, right? Because we know there's going to be ways, and so I'd rather I, in central planning you'd you would err on the side of having too much material, but not wasteful amounts. So that's one. Right now, with just in time manufacturing, what's basically happening is that we've optimized the entire supply chain in order to basically get in the material, crate with it, turn it, and get it out the door. So you're not having any of the of the inventory waste, and that's because they're trying to drive free cash flow because it has nothing to do with continuous improvement or profitability has to do with free cash flow so you don't want your money tied up in inventory so you just attempt to increase profits by literally driving off the waste which is needing to pay your vendor and holding on to inventory that has no basic market value at that point in time so what happens under central planning is you're meeting a quota based on the demand for the people and if there is a natural disaster 
you have the ability to basically lean out other food types if you have to and still supply food to the general population. Whereas in the market, if you can't buy it, I'm sorry, you can't buy it and that's gone. And there's no there's no stockpile. There's no ability to maintain any populations for any one point in time. There's no planning for it. Nobody gives a shit. There's nobody looking over the shoulders saying, hey, you know what? Every nine years, there's going to be an issue. Now, we have that in actuarials, right? We have those people that, and people that are making bets on on the weather for, for insurance policies. So in centralized planning, you get, you get the power of distributed farming. So let's say a natural disaster hits the, the west coast of the United States. You still have the rest of the North America that's able to provide food for the west coast. So you don't have those issues where the market is going to drive the costs up in, in that. And, and also in centralized planning, take a look at Texas and electrical grid. You could divert power to Texas from the rest of the grid by just reducing the amount of, of power usage in the rest of the United States as you burn it up, or Mexico. The other problem is that we have borders where there needs to be no borders because they diverted the natural gas literally from Mexico because it was more profitable to sell it to Texas under spot pricing. So the residents of Mexico also saw issues because they diverted their natural resources for profitability to Texas, which is wild ideas. It's just so insane to me. Natural disasters come to multiple flavors. It comes in the fact that you might have long-term systemic issues like drought or famine or or things that are happening that are long-term. You know, months and months and months, years and years and years of just stuff. You have polluted waterways or something that happens where it takes a lot of energy over a lot of time to, to maintain that. And that means you have to find a way in your supply chain to maintain that. What you're seeing underneath capitalism is that nobody gives a shit about Syria. Nobody gives a shit about that country because it's not profitable. Nobody gives a shit about Africa because it's not profitable. Whereas if we have an actual centralized authority saying this is the food that we need in each continent or area... Here's what we know. We can divert resources around in order to make sure that the general population of the world meets its minimum requirement of calories in order to sustain as you get rid of that shock. It's essentially shocks the system that shows you whether or not your processes in place can maintain people. Then you also have the natural disasters, which are very acute or very strong for a short amount of time. Look at Texas. That's that's three days of intense ice storms that basically to wipe them out, which is going to be months of rebuilding. You have very intense hurricanes. You have very intense tornadoes. You have uh, very intense tsunamis, things that are very intense that aren't causing the suffering, but what happened and the damage that was dealt by it are going to cause long-term suffering. So it's another resource diversion. So instead of it being, you know, you just need food, now you need food and clothing and supplies to rebuild. And it's another whole shock on the supply chain that's not just you know food, but if you had central planning that had reserves of these important materials ready to go, knowing and planning for the next disaster, knowing a disaster is going to happen, right? We had we have major floods, we have major hurricanes every year. If you have a an overarching leadership that's ready to go for this, you can protect, stave off, and and hopefully reduce the amount of suffering in the world from the fact that you have essential authority that can move around all the pieces it needs from country to country, place to place to basically alleviate that that short term suffering. So the very premise that when Texas was hit with an ice storm, that from an actuarial perspective was statistically likely to happen in some hundred year time frame or something like that, you had spot prices of natural gas increasing from roughly three dollars to twenty dollars. 
That is the literal definition of a market inefficiency. In central planning, an ice storm in Texas would in no way, shape, or form affect anybody else. We would simply divert existing resources that were accounted for by some statistical metric that says, hey, this year in the winter, we're likely to have some shock to the system that represents a 1% decrease in natural gas efficiency or something. So we better stockpile 1%. We're going to stockpile something. We're going to preemptively plan to address a statistical risk. And the market does not do that, which is why spot prices increase from 3 to $20. There's no incentive for the market to do that, but there is an incentive in central planning to be efficient by preemptively planning for these known risks. It's all risk planning. And yes, the futures market for natural gas has futures and you can buy derivatives and all that's risk and you can model it and blah, 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 blah. Well, there were people in Texas that literally didn't have power. So all of the risk modeling through financial instruments literally doesn't help humans. So who gives a shit? Literally doesn't matter. I cannot take a, a derivative printed off on a piece of paper and heat my house. That does not in any way, shape, or form help me. It's not real. It's not a real thing. A derivative is not a real thing. It, you don't get a tank of gas. That's, that's not how it works. And so this emphasis on these financial instruments that are proxies for risk and proxies for future work at some future date, it's all an inefficiency that harms actual people. And if you were to simply say, as a value statement, I want to ensure that the natural gas market is efficient by stockpiling some percentage and having a centrally planned system in place so that when these shocks happen, people would not literally freeze to death. It's efficient and there's a value statement. Now, I don't think the U.S. is prepared to make any sort of value statement about actually wanting to help people, but from an economic perspective, central planning is more efficient. It just is. So this efficiency and this risk reduction is part of the input-outputs model, and it's part of, well, we're going to need more steel, but let's have a little bit of a cushion, so we'll produce 2% more, and in the event that iron dries up, we have a little bit of cushion to deal with things. That is something that should be accounted for, and it's not presently in our current profit-driven economy. Same with fires. Let's say your field burns down. Okay, you you have a reduction in the amount of wheat that's produced, which means you need to hire a fire department, which means the fire department needs to take some steel to have its fire engines and its hoses and its fire hydrants and its high-pressure piping, whatever. That's a risk that requires resources, but the risk mitigates much larger risks later on. And minimizing risk is not something that capital wants to incur because it's not profitable. In the natural gas example, by not mitigating risk, the people that had natural gas were able to profit on it by selling it at $20 spot price. They literally made money by not mitigating risks. Yes, that's the important takeaway here. It was more efficient for the market to let Texas freeze to death from a market point of view than it was a stockpile. It. It's similar to it's, it's more profitable for the, the natural gas companies not to store helium. So what's going on with the helium prices? They're going through the roof, and there may be a shortage nationally because there's no centralized authority requiring the storage of helium from natural gas production. And there's a shortage of helium. There absolutely is, to the point where MRIs are in danger of being able to be ran, or, or little Timmy can't get a birthday balloon from Party City. The takeaway here is that what the neoliberals claim, 
and the conservatives claim to be a very efficient marketplace is not efficient. It was not designed to help you or I. It's not designed to help the workers. It's not designed to help families. It's designed to increase the profitability of a company and its products. And it's designed to basically trade your security for profitability. And the more you think about how you're being toyed with, the angrier you should get. Because at the end of the day, the freezing in Texas was going to happen, but the power outage didn't need to happen. Centralized planning would have stopped that from happening. Regulations would have prevented Texas from happening. Hurricane Katrina was going to happen, but the amount of devastation afterwards, the rebuilding of the communities that, that basically stalled out and, and fucked everybody over, didn't have to happen. You don't have to have people starving to death and rooting through dumpsters in order to get food because they don't have a job because they're not getting paid enough to Uber. Literal centralized planning is designed to maximize the efficiency of production and maximize the standard of living for the bulk majority of the world. For future episodes and to learn more about the worker movement, join us at workermovement.com.